Well, at some point in all of our lives, we have to write a bio. Whether it's for a job application or a social media profile, this is my bio. I'll just send you this picture. But it's really stressful for me to send a bio because how do I sum up who I am in a little box with as few words as possible? I've literally spent hours sometimes trying to fit all of who I am into like 200 words or less, right? And even then, I'm never completely satisfied with what I come up with. It always feels like I'm leaving out huge parts of who I am, and I get worried that I'm gonna be mislabeled or misunderstood. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Have you ever felt like you didn't get to tell all of your story and you're worried that you'll be misunderstood? I think that's a common human experience. The truth is that humans are complex. <laughs> Identities are complex. Married couples will tell you that you never stop learning about your partner no matter how long you've been married. Because people are mysterious. We are even a little bit mysterious to ourselves, are we not? For example, this past week, um, a pastor that I deeply respect in Seattle named Gail Song Bantam, she posted this graphic that her son created that she was really proud of. But for some context, you have to know that Gail Song Bantam is a Korean-American pastor married to a biracial theologian named Brian Bantam. He's black and white. And they uh, together pastor a church in Seattle. Well, he's, he's on staff as like a teaching pastor, but she's the lead pastor. And their, their church is open and affirming and very diverse, culturally, uh, ethnically, in every way. And her church staff includes Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, who is a expert at racial justice, a sought after speaker, a consultant, and her husband has written amazing books like Redeeming Mulatto, which is a really terrible word that used to be used for mixed race people. And in that book, he talks about what it means to be biracial and how that relates to Jesus being both God and man. It's an incredible book. So for context, this is what she posted on, on Facebook. She posted this graphic created by her son, Ezra. And she said, I saw this and I got emotional. This is Ezra's artistic response to the prompt, what does impossible is nothing mean to you? She said, my God, this next generation gives me so much hope. For those of us who find ourselves in the in-between, the neither nor, the both and, and all the uncertain spaces of belonging and identity, I hope this encourages you and sets your heart on fire. Here at Roots, we call ourselves a community of misfits on a mission, finding identity in Jesus. And if you were here last Sunday, you heard me talk about what it means to be a community of misfits. And if you missed that sermon, the audio is on the website. Also, I've refreshed our audio podcast so you can listen to it on your drive, on your commute. But a community of misfits are those who resist gatekeeping and walls of division to embrace access and inclusion for all people. If Christ has called us to himself, and if, um, and if Christ has called us to be one, then what obstacles could there be? The Holy Spirit has moved prophets to call for the tearing down 
of every dividing wall that separates us from being united to God and being united in God. And that is what God has done in Christ. But sometimes our interpretations of the very scriptures that teach us to be one in Christ destroy and divide the church. That's why this morning, as we continue in our teaching series, Story and Song, Listening to Our History, Discerning Our Future, we're going to explore the resonance between the ethos of roots and the Moravian tradition. And I'm going to home in on a very important place of overlap, a Jesus-centered reading of the Bible. But before we dive into our text for this morning, could we pray together for the Spirit's work of illumination? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the one who opens our spiritual eyes and enlightens our souls. And you are the one who unites us with Christ and with one another. So would you do that work among us even today? Would you make us the kind of community that puts on display for all to see the barrier transgressing and gatekeeping busting power of the gospel? Help us to see that Jesus is the word made flesh. And may the word be like a seed that finds good soil. May the word take up root and bear fruit, good fruit that will last. And may the words of my lips and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. So our text this morning is probably a familiar story to many of us, but we usually reserve this story for Eastertide. So it's going to come a little early this year. It comes from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 24, starting in verse 13. So now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you keep walking, as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests... Oh, I didn't advance it, did I? <laughs> there we go. Now you can follow along. The chief priests and uh, where am I? Mm -hmm. I lost my place. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, 
for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Okay, so back in uh, 2016, I was living in L.A., and this video came out. This is like a small, like a short film that Fuller Seminary produced, and it features a interview that Bono did with Eugene Peterson on the Psalms. And in the video, you can see how excited Bono is to meet with Eugene Peterson. (laughs) It's crazy because Eugene Peterson had no idea who Bono was until a student (laughs) came up to him in class and said, hey, you got a shout out in Rolling Stone in an interview done with Bono. Bono's a big fan of yours. And he was like, who's Bono? (laughs) So in this video, you can really see Bono just being like, Like, he comes to all the way to Montana to meet with Eugene Peterson and sit at his table and talk about the Psalms. It's beautiful. Now, imagine you get to have a Bible study with Jesus. Imagine you get to hear how Jesus interprets the Bible on a leisurely stroll, a five-mile walk to Emmaus. According to Luke, Jesus sees the prophets In the prophets, a portrait of the Messiah having to endure suffering long before he enters into his glory. Luke here calls Moses and the prophets. That's what he uses as a term for all of the Hebrew Bible. This is apparently a very different way of interpreting the Bible than these disciples had known up until this point. Because their faces were downcast. Luke says, because they had hoped that Jesus was the one that was going to redeem Israel. But when Jesus was handed over to be crucified, their hopes were dashed. But Jesus says to them, don't you see? The prophets foretold that the, that the Messiah would suffer before he enters his glory. And Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Believe it or not, this Jesus-centered way of interpreting the Bible is not actually common to all Christians. Believe it or not. I can personally attest that I've been a part of churches and denominations and have been on staff at churches where we did not read the Bible this way. In fact, we read the Bible more like a cookbook. You could open up the Bible to any, any page and there'd be a recipe for your life. And all the pages were equal because they all had a recipe on them. So any, any page would do. Flip it open to Leviticus, Read a page about, you know, not eating shellfish, and that's your lesson for the day. But as Pastor Brian Zahn has said, the command to not eat shellfish does not rise to the same level of importance for Christians as the Gospel of John saying the word became flesh, or 1 John saying God is love. No, Jesus here shows us that the Hebrew Bible is designed to point ahead of itself, to the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. It was a story that was not yet finished. And Jesus is the plot twist 
that brings the entire story to its climax, and about which the Bible would be incomplete without. Imagine watching a murder mystery movie like Knives Out or The Glass Onion, and then your friend turns the movie off halfway through and says, wasn't that a great movie? You'd be like, are you serious? We don't even know who did it yet. The whole point of the movie is to figure out who committed the murder. It's not a good movie if you stop it halfway. The Bible is a story that points to Jesus and the God of love. Regardless of how obvious this may seem to some of us, this isn't how every denomination reads the Bible. Many denominations, due to their histories and different cultural settings, have made the Bible itself their primary article of faith. Go to, try it, do a little experiment. Go to 10 churches in the Twin Cities. Go to their What We Believe page and see what the first doctrine is. It's going to be the Bible. <laughs> That's the first doctrine. Um, now, I'm not saying that the Bible is not important. The Bible is very important. Very important to me. Very important to Christians. I've devoted many years of my life to the formal academic study of the Bible. So it's very important. But if we aren't careful, we can easily put the Bible in a place that is reserved for God alone. The Bible is a gift from God. But the Bible is not God. In fact, when the Bible is elevated to this place in our lives, our priorities can get out of whack. We can easily forget that it's not enough merely to read the Bible and know what the Bible says. The point of the Bible is to lead us to live a life of love, to actually do what the Bible says. Jesus once said this to the Pharisees. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's not the scriptures that give us the life God wants for us. It's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is where the distinction between the essentials and the ministerials comes in that we talked about last week. The Bible is one of the most important ministerials we have. It's up there with the church and the sacraments, but it is not an essential. The essentials are God creates, God redeems, God blesses, and we respond in faith, love, and hope. When we center Jesus and recognize that the scriptures are a God-given gift that leads us to Christ, we're able to hold together all the diverse and complex identities in the body of Christ. The Bible no longer becomes an obstacle to unity. It becomes an instrument of the Spirit to unite us to Christ and to one another. This is why on our beliefs page, we have this statement. We realize that not all Roots members or regular tenders will come to the same conclusions about what the Bible teaches. Yet we believe that our unity comes from our shared allegiance to Christ, not from absolute agreement about the interpretation of Scripture. We believe that if we exhibit the radical love of Christ, our differences and diversities will enrich our life together, not divide us. What can happen when a particular interpretation of the Bible is placed ahead of allegiance to Jesus is that the Bible can be used to justify positions and actions that are actually hateful, violent, and unjust. 
Christians throughout church history have essentially said, yeah, I know that I'm commanded by Christ to love my neighbor as myself, but my interpretation of the Bible tells me that slavery is permissible, so I'm going to enslave my neighbor and call it biblical. Or Christians have said, yes, of course I'm commanded by Christ to serve others and put their needs before my own, but my interpretation of the Bible tells me that man is the head of woman, so women just have to serve men because that's biblical. Or, yes, of course I'm supposed to treat everyone with dignity and kindness as Christ has treated me, but my interpretation of the Bible tells me that same-sex attracted people are an abomination to God, so I can mistreat them and call it biblical. Am I wrong? One of the many things at Roots that we have in common with the Moravian tradition is that when we want to know how to live, we don't ask the question, what is biblical? We ask the question, what is Christ-like? What would Jesus do, right? (laughs) WWJD. Um, In fact, in my research of the Moravian tradition, this has been one of their distinctives, actually. In 2011, uh, a board over the Moravian church called the Interprovincial, that's a hard word to say, the Interprovincial Faith and Order Commission developed a statement of guiding principles on how to read the Bible. And this is what they said. They said, in more recent years, many Moravians have written articles, papers, letters, and other documents that have addressed in one way or another the topic of biblical interpretation. All of these voices, while speaking from different contexts and with somewhat varying perspectives, seem to affirm what has been affirmed throughout our history. That as Moravians proclaiming Christ and him crucified as our confession of faith and believing that the triune God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only source of our life and salvation, we do not believe that Jesus points us to Scripture so that we find answers there, but rather that Scripture points us to Jesus so that we can find the answers in him. Amen? That should get a rousing amen from me. (laughs) They also say this, as a church, we must be attentive to God's word, the word of the cross, the word of reconciliation, the word of personal union with the Savior, the word of love between one another, and our faith and order must be formulated under scripture and the Holy Spirit. Yet it is not scripture and our conformity to a particular interpretation of that that unites us, but rather Christ, our chief elder who holds us together by keeping us close to him. Being united with Christ and in Christ, with all of our diversity, is at the very heart of roots and our ethos and at the very heart of the Moravian movement. This Jesus-centeredness is what inspired leaders like Jan Hus, who passionately believed that worship should be accessible to all people, regardless of their station, regardless of their class, regardless of their ethnicity. Back then, the entire worship service was conducted in Latin. And if you weren't educated, you didn't know Latin. So you were basically a spectator during worship. You weren't a worshiper. You were an observer of worship. But Hus preached in the common tongue, Czech, and he Uh, translated hymns into Czech, and he read the scriptures in Czech. These were subversive acts at a time when the church had not yet undergone the Protestant Reformation. As we're preparing, or as I was preparing this message, I went looking for examples of worship. 
And I found this video that I want to play for you because it's a powerful example of worship in one's heart language. And the reason why this hit me so hard is because right now in Israel, the, the nation of Israel, they're undergoing a pretty radical change in leadership that could have very negative consequences for Palestinians and possibly for peace in the Middle East. And so when I saw this video, it brought tears to my eyes. I want to play it for you. Here, mending every heart. 
To close, I want to point us back to our text for today. Jesus is the center of the story of the Bible. But Jesus isn't just an interpretive lens through which we look. Jesus has given us himself. Jesus has given us a sacramental meal in which we, through which we draw close to God. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jan Hus wrote a hymn that was translated into English in 2006 that says, O living bread of Christ our head, through which the church is still supplied with life, from our Lord crucified. To earth he came in human frame that he himself might give in place of our poor sinful human race. Christ, our high priest, gave us this feast. On the sad night he died. Before he died, this sacrament to us supplied. With his own flesh, us to refresh. With this pure blood that we be fed, he consecrates the wine and bread. On this pure food of grace endued, by grace endued, which we on earth share joyfully, grant us to feast eternally. Both Roots and the Moravian tradition hold that Christ is present in communion by the Holy Spirit. We don't try to explain how, we just receive it by faith. So let us pray the prayer, this prayer of confession, as we prepare our hearts for communion. And before we pray, can somebody go and get Oshida and the kids and bring them back for communion? <laughs> Thank you. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. As did your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.